Okay, thank you very much for, first of all, to Emily for coming down from Durham, and to people turning up here um, as the last seminar of this term. I was saying to uh, Frederick Carper, where everybody's quite tired when they get to eighth week, um, because it's a bit of a, bit of a, a long run. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're going to have a great seminar today. Um, Emily um, uh, graduated from the University of California in Santa Cruz. Um, did her doctorate in uh, um, medical anthropology at the University of Durham and is now a lecturer and senior research associate at the Centre for Public Policy and Health in the School of Medicine at the, at the University of Durham. So, works on inequality, obesity, stress, we've been doing some work together, we'll carry on doing work together, I hope. Okay. And uh, she's going to talk about advancing a model of inequality, stress and obesity. Emily, thank, thank you. Thank you very much, Stanley. Um, am I right, this is the unit for biocultural variation and obesity? Yeah. Excellent, okay. Um, so thanks for having me. Um, I'm going to talk today about um, a piece of research or a, a program of research that I've been working on with Ms. Stanley. Um, so I'm just going to go into a little bit about what, um, who I am and what I do and what I'm about, the kind of research that I do. Um, and then talk about um, the rationale for, for linking these three concepts together of inequality, stress, and obesity. Um, and then talk on um, some research that Stanley and I are just imminently going to publish, or to submit for publication, um, and then some future work that we want to do and that we're looking for funding for. So just to give you an idea of the structure. Um, this is um, Durham at the top, and then Queen's Campus at the bottom, which is in Stockton. That's where I work. That's where the medical school is based. Um, so I'm funded by an organization called FUSE. Has anyone heard of FUSE? Are people familiar with it? It's um, one of the five um, UK CRC centers for public health, um, for excellence in public health, excuse me. Um, and we are a consortium of the five Northeast universities, um, Northeast in England. Um, and it's a virtual research center that really we get funding primarily from the MRC to build capacity in public health research in the Northeast. And specifically with the remit to work with local community communities there, um, which as you'll probably know, um, has a lot of um, areas of deprivation there. And really... Um, a lot of poor health, a lot of um, leading indicators there. Um, and so we do this through um, knowledge translation. So really the idea is um, how do we get research into practice and policy? So not just doing our research in university, but working with people um, in, in practice and, and policy to make research more relevant. Um, and part of that, there's a, within FUSE, there's the Complex Systems Research Program, which is um, uh, one of the six research programs that they have. The others are, are listed down here for your interest. Um, I'm just coming to the end of um, my contract there, where I was the lead researcher on that, working with Professor um, David Hunter, who's also the Deputy Director of FUSE. Um, and we um, looked at, or we're still looking at, um, how we can adopt a complexity lens to looking at public health issues, um, which is something um, that I think anthropologists have been doing for decades, and um, now it's, it's becoming, it's a very hot topic, complex systems, and within the field of health and public health. 
Are all of you anthropologists, or is this a really dis interdisciplinary group? Maybe you're interdisciplinary anthropologists. Are you, is, is your unit within anthropology, Stanley? Or? It's mostly anthropologists, yeah. Yeah, okay. And then the, the biologists in the back, yeah, okay. Um, Right, and then um, where I work in the Center for Public Policy and Health with David Hunter is also a WHO collaborating center um, for um, complex health systems research, knowledge, and action. So it's similar work that we do with FUSE, but obviously it's on a more global scale. And we, um, we are a health and all policies um, approved training center. So I'm not sure if um, you've come across the health and all policies approach from the WHO, um, but it's very much... Um, um, it's been developed by Ilona Kickbush and others to, as an approach to getting, um, addressing health issues beyond the health sector and actually working with organizations across other sectors, maybe sectors you wouldn't expect to be involved in health. I mean, planning, for example, education, those typically do fall within health, but other, other um, sectors like transport, for example. Um, and also working across, um, not just government, but also with working with NGOs and, and so forth to, um, to look at health as a wider system, not just something that happens in hospitals and clinics. Um, so what we do there, um, last year um, I led a, a workshop in the Caribbean training um, senior um, government officials on the health and health policies with some colleagues. And we've contributed to their intersectoral action database. If any of you are interested, um, they have got case studies of, um, of countries across the globe that have adopted a health and all policies approach. Um, and um, we're running a summer school in September, um, which is open, um, open to anyone who wants to attend. It's really for high level um, policy people. So that's health and all policies. Any questions about that work? Are, any, are you familiar with the health and all policies approach? No. Yes. Okay. Um, it's frozen. Uh, and just to say, I, um, I've got funding to run a special interest group on stress, health, and well-being um, at Durham University through the Welcome Research um, Institute, uh, not Welcome, excuse me, the Wolfson Research Institute for Health and Well-Being, which is up at Durham University. Um, and some of the work we do is linked with the work I do on biopsychosocial understandings of stress, as well as mental health, um, precarious employment, and, um, and other issues of inequalities. Um, so if, if you're all, at all interested in, in that, um, Stanley's a member, an external member of that. Um, so that's just a bit about the work that I do. So I'm a medical anthropologist, but I very much do research, a lot of applied research um, that um, aims to inform policy and practice. Um, why am I interested in, in obesity? Well, um, you'll probably know all this from all this slide. Um, 
current approaches to obesity are very much looking at behavior change um, approaches. So um, the evidence shows that we, um, we know there's strong associations between socioeconomic status and obesity. Um, and we know that the evidence for behavior change interventions is quite limited. Um, and, but for whatever reason, um, people in public health and policy, policy still persist with, with this idea that um, it's individuals' responsibility, individuals' control to change their behaviors um, without really looking at the wider system that people live within. Um, Ten Hove did a really interesting review on individualized obesity initiatives and found, um, just raised some really important issues about how um, individualized interventions can be harmful in terms of stigma, um, uncertainty, and blame. Um, and there's research coming out of Yale, I'm sure you're familiar with the Yale group, um, who do research on stigma, um, weight-related stigma. My university does this too, it just jumps slides, so it must not just, I thought it was our, our university, but okay. Um, so there's evidence that suggests that obesity-related stigma can actually perpetuate um, uh, obesity, that people who experience um, bullying or stigma, it actually can lead to further weight gain. Um, so there's, for me, that's a real issue, these behavior change approaches, um, they're not really very strong in terms of evidence, so there's not really a great rationale for using them. I think a lot of it's based on ideology rather than evidence, um, and with the potential to stigmatize people and, and make the issue worse, I think we really need a paradigm shift. Um, so just to, to summarize the risks, um, I mean the idea is really that you're, you're trying to motivate people to change the behavior, so you're kind of like offering a donkey a carrot on a stick, um, but really what, what's going on is there's a, a carrot and the, the donkey gets the stick, so the donkey's going to, um, in the end, get punished. So that's you know where the, the issue of responsibility lies, if we put the responsibility on the individual, um, we end up overburdening people. Um, so as I said, the behavior change interventions, they don't, they're limited in success, they don't really consider the context of people's lives. And, and there can be um, negative psychosocial consequences. Um, so some work by Pape, David Hunter, who I mentioned, who I work with, um, have published a really interesting paper on the concept of lifestyle drift, um, whereby um, people tend to individualize causes of health outcomes, despite the evidence that shows that there's wider factors affecting health outcomes. Um, um, which is a, a piece of research that I'm, I'm interested in exploring. I, my, my colleague Ted Schrecker up at Durham um, does research um, on the politics of lifestyle drift. Um, so that's, kind of, that's an emerging, emerging concept coming through that's very much applicable to obesity specifically. Um, and there's research again coming out of, out of Yale that suggests that um, people are willing to change their stigmatizing views of obese people. Um, if they're given um, information on wider causal factors. So really there's an area um, uh, for further research and investigation in this um, in, in terms of, of really changing the discourse on obesity in terms of um, individual responsibility. 
Um, so I like this cartoon. I, um, I go back to this cartoon if I get paper rejected or a grant application <laughs> rejected. Um, this is a really innovative approach, so there's this employee talking to his boss, presumably. But I'm afraid we can't consider it. It's never been done before. So paradigm shifting is, of course, um, a, a great challenge, um, but something I'm, I'm determined to, to take on. Um, so I did um, a bit of a review of um, work that's going out, going on out there internationally on um, approaches that countered this behavior change um, um, paradigm. And there's systems thinking, which um, which we do up at um, Center for Public Policy and Health. So that's really looking at the macro, meso, and micro levels upon which policy um, can can act. Um, and this links with what I was talking about with um, the work we do with FUSE and the WHO in terms of health and health policies, so working um, across systems and across sectors. Um, and uh, Lang and Rainer and their um, policy review uh, that contributed to the foresight model, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, um, talk about um, the need for firm political leadership um, across government as well as um, strengthening civil society, um, <clears throat> which leads to um, the need for strong institutions, active civil society, and then knowledge to action approaches, um, which I've touched on, which really aim to bridge research policy um, and practice. And there's this idea about co-producing research. So the research doesn't just come through the university, but it actually a lot of the research questions that we come up with are, originate from policy and practice. So people who are on the front lines um, seeing the, the issues affecting people, seeing the issues, the gap between policy and practice. <clears throat> How can policy better inform practice? Um, so there's co-production models which we use, which are um, quite an exciting way of, of doing research, I think. Um, I just wanted to introduce this book in case um, people haven't read it. I think it's quite fascinating um, by Kirsten Voigt and colleagues. Um, I think this was out 2014 or 15. It's pretty recent. Um, and what, what this book essentially does is calls for an open debate on the politics of obesity, which is something that we really haven't seen. Um, and they argue we haven't done it. And how can we go about with policy, policy solutions? Um, and, and health promotion if we haven't really even gotten to the politics of it. So we haven't looked at why we're doing what we're doing. Is it ethical? Um, what are the issues around it? So they, they've highlighted this list of issues. Um, so there's personal responsibility. Parents get a, a lot of stick. Um, there's talk of corporate responsibility, but as we know from the public health responsibility deal in the UK, it, it gets very little traction if it's, um, if it's a voluntary responsibility, which um, the public health responsibility deal is. And they, they highlight that obesity really is a social justice issue, dealing with inequalities, moral judgment, stigma, um, and the, um, I think, unethical um, practices of, of the diet industry, the diet and the food industry. Working, um, working, colluding together um, to uh, create uh, fat people who then need diet pills. Who then, um, so they've created their their own nice little system, um, and then it, it does extend out to environmental justice issues in terms of resource allocation. Um, 
um, the food industry, waste and so on. So it's really a, a global issue that needs um, to be discussed in, in a political context, which I'll touch on a little bit more later. Um, so I started doing, I'm thinking about the behavior change paradigm and, and looking at this research on stigma and responsibility. Um, and so I've, I've done, you know, some research looking into to stress and obesity and, um, you know, there's a lot of research out there that, um, that links stress and obesity. Um, we know that um, stress can alter our metabolism and lead to weight gain. It can also lead to weight loss, depending on the context. Um, and it also can um, trigger behaviors like comfort eating and decreased physical activity. So these, this is research in animal and some in human models as well. Um, and more recent reviews um, confirm causal relationships between inequality, psychosocial social stress, and obesity. Um, and so that's work that's come out from um, Pe um, Kate Peckett and Richard Wilkinson, as well as others. Um, so really, um, obesity is... Is, it's generally considered to be policy and treatment resistant. We don't have a treatment for it. Um, we haven't had any policies that have really effectively addressed it. Um, and we, so we know it's complex and multifaceted and requires multiple solutions um, across society. Um, but something that we haven't really, um, what's not really been researched is, is the stress component. So I'll talk a bit more about that. So I'm sure you're all familiar with the psychobiology of stress. I like this slide. I think it's very, um, for me, it's straightforward. Maybe for some people it's not. On the left, there's the parasympathetic nervous system, and on the right is the sympathetic nervous system. Um, on the left is our relaxed state, um, and on the right is um, what happens when we're under stress or experiencing stress. Um, so this is affecting the different, the different organs and different um, systems, the physiological systems of the body. Um, so we have, um, under stress, um, we're, we're ready, for, it's the fight and flight mode, right? We're, our eyes are ready to take in more information. Um, our um, lung capacity in, improves, heart rate increases, um, our digestion systems shut down, um, so all from the saliva to digestive activity, um, and whereas in the relaxed state, we're, we're not so concerned about getting our heart rates up, we're relaxed and we're, we're digesting. Um, um, so there are biopsychosocial models of health, um, which I'm, I'm sure everyone's familiar with. It's used a lot in psychiatry in terms of mental health, so I've got a a Venn diagram here of the um, biopsychosocial model of mental health, um, and it's used as an understand a way to understand the context between social structures and health outcomes. So for me, it's a very useful way of looking at health and especially obesity. Um, it is challenging to work with biopsychosocial models because you are crossing epistemologies. Um, and working across disciplines, which always brings up its own challenges. But I think it's, for me, it's worth, worth the challenges um, because of the insight that you can gain from looking at it from these three different um, disciplines and areas. Uh, 
I'm sure um, all of you are familiar with foresight. Do I need to talk about foresight, the foresight obesity systems model? I, I, I hesitate to because I think people know it so well, it's like beating a dead horse. Um, there's a couple yeses, but nobody said uh, no. Um, so just to talk through it real quickly, um, this was um, published in um, 2007, and it is an exercise done in the UK um, on, with the UK population in mind. Um, at the centre is energy balance, so it's, um, it's really trying to model what causes energy imbalance, what causes obesity. And um, the work um, which Stanley was involved in um, was a, a large collaborative of people um, drawing in the evidence at the time that was known about what causes obesity and um, creating this qualitative visual map as a way of understanding what's, what's going on in terms of the big picture. So, um, so underlying this model are all, all these different systems going on, but essentially they've, they've bubbled them into to different areas. Um, we know that obesity is underpinned by our biology, um, but it's also related to our individual behaviors, physical activity, and diet. Um, and then they've also included the wider um, food system and the wider physical activity um, environment. And then I think rather erroneously they've got the societal influences kind of pushed up to the top. Um, because for me, it's all society really, it all includes society. Um, this, is, this is the map, the same map, but without the bubbles, without the, um, the different sections. Um, so you can see it's, it's a spaghetti diagram, it's really complicated, complex. Um, and this is a really good map if you're interested to look at this because you can scroll over this and it, it, it's interactive so it highlights the different systems so you can, can focus in on, on certain ones. Um, at, the, at the top here, sort of in the middle section there, they've got um, one on stress. Um, so I, I studied this, um, the evidence underlying this stress subsystem that they, that they put together. Um, so there's 13 in total. One of them repeats. I don't remember which one at the moment. Um, but essentially here they've got 12 different factors that relate to um, how stress is, um, is caused or interrelates with obesity and energy imbalance. Um, so they have some, um, some social factors like um, people not in education, employment, or training. Um, alcohol consumption, smoking cessation, for example. Um, interestingly, they've got a perceived lack of time, which is a funny way of putting it, um, because um, we all really do lack a lot of time to lead healthy lives. I don't know if it's perception or reality. Um, so... I, I think the perceived lack of time came because somebody said that there's plenty of time to watch television. Ah, interesting. That's, that, was, that was the comment in the meeting. Right, okay. Yeah. So we have enough time to watch TV, but not enough time to exercise. That's, that's really interesting how um, evidence gets <laughs> put Mangled, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so uh, what I 
concluded studying this a little bit more is that this is really a psychobiological model. There's not a great deal of evidence um, from the social sciences. I think, Stanley, you were perhaps the one contributor from social sciences, maybe. I also take anthropologists in a room full of psychologists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, uh, and, and the different domains were separated for the most part, so it avoided disagreement uh, among, the, among the different different systems. The different systems were put together later. Right. So it was conceptualized, separated out into different work groups, and then pulled back in again. Right. Huh. And, um, and that was to avoid disagreement. Sorry? That was to avoid disagreement. Across domains, yeah. Mm. Okay. That's really useful insight. Um, surely it should be uh, more collaborative than that. But uh, that's how it I'm not surprised. Um, so that confirms my my assessment that it's a psychobiological model, really, um, um, lacking in social sciences and specifically qualitative research that looks at um, the perspectives of the public who the model is meaning to um, to target. Um, and it. it this model is very useful in terms of how it highlighted um, the idea of obesity as a complex issue. So I think that it was really useful in that way to raise awareness about it in that sense. Um, but without really looking at um, the context of how all these systems actually play out in an individual's life or in a community. Um, is for me, it's a shortcoming, and um, it's something that I, I would like to explore further <clears throat> um, through um, some anthropological work. So we know in anthropology, stress has been studied for a, a really long time, so there's a real valuable literature there that I think could contribute. Um, so we know that um, stress is a universal phenomenon and that it's biologically based, it's something we can measure biologically. Um, but the experiences of stress vary from individual to individual and culture to culture. Um, so it's a biological reality, but it can also be studied as a mechanism of social suffering. So it's a way of looking across context and, and, and looking at how people cope with, um, with social suffering um, across cultures and across um, contexts. Um, and it fits in with this, uh, this anthropological idea about modern society or certain aspects of modern society being unnatural and that our social structures can be pathogenic. Um, so it's more about the social institutions and structures um, rather than the individual themselves generating this pathology themselves on their own in isolation. So just say a little bit about complexity um, as it's an emerging field in public health um, and I think it's, it's becoming more and more um, talked about and researched. Um, so the WHO um, have adopted complexity lens and that ties in with the health and all policies work. Um, so just taking their, their definition, um, it's systems comprised of networks of interconnected components that influence each other in an often non-linear fashion. So I have um, a picture of starlings swarming, which we were talking about earlier before the seminar. Um, and um, I like the analogy of complex systems um, using uh, 
football because you have, um, you know, you can have the, at the beginning of a game, you have the, the team structure and the formation, and it's a very two-dimensional concept. Um, but once you actually get in game time over the 90 minutes, you have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. Anything could happen. Um, and um, essentially, when you're talking about um, social structures and social systems, you have individuals making their own decisions and reacting to the environment. Um, so it's not anything that you can predict or control. So trying to use a psychological perspective on changing people's behaviors is, for me, it's really, it, it, it um, simplifies the complexity of the way that we interact with each other and our environments. So just some defining concepts of a complex system um, without going into too much detail about it, um, it's, it must be adaptive, heterogeneous, it's dynamic, so it's happening over time. Um, there's feedback between the different players and individuals involved. Um, but key to complexity is this idea of emergence. So, like I said in the football analogy, you don't know what's going to come up, you don't know what the score is going to be. Um, and for me, it's really what's exciting about studying complex systems is allowing that emergence to happen. So rather than creating experimental models um, with humans in their real lives, it, a lot of it is about um, seeing what happens and accepting the messiness of life, really. So. Public health issues are, are now being framed within this complexity language. Um, so a lot of public health issues are embedded within the fabric of society. So um, it's, it's impossible to, to separate um, public health issues from um, social structures and social interactions. And we know, um, you know with the, um, the epidemiological transition from infectious diseases to chronic diseases, which we're currently currently working within, um, we know that chronic diseases um, or non-communicable diseases are um, not easy to treat and it's, it's, a, it's a major challenge that we're facing right now in public health. Um, and it's been argued by Diaz Ruz that um, while we try, are trying to address um, um, these you know, complex public health issues, if we're not addressing the underlying social structures, the underlying causes of obesities, um, then um, we, we won't really make progress until, until that's done. Um, so complex systems thinking, it takes into account context, as I've said. Um, it considers the various levels on which public health can be addressed, and there's a range of sectors involved, which I've already mentioned. Um, this is a book recently published by my colleagues um, Ted Schrecker and Claire Bambra up at Durham um, who um, have um, a chapter in this book, How Politics Makes, How Politics Makes Us Six. Makes us six. And actually, I wonder why they have an S here because shouldn't it, isn't politics plural? Just, anyway, um, sorry, I'm stumbling over How Politics Make Us Sick. Um, Neo, so they, it's a book about neoliberal epidemics. It's really interesting. They've got a chapter in there um, on obesity specifically. Um, so they, they highlight that there's three, three models um, to, to public health. There's the biomedical model, um, which we, we've been moving away from. And currently we're, we're in 
the behavior model where we're um, trying to help people make healthier choices, so-called healthier choices. Um, and what they're calling for in this book is that actually we move to a third model, which is the political determinants of health. Um, because they, they go beyond changing environments in order to facilitate better choices, but actually go to the root of injustices um, and reducing poverty and, and, and inequalities. Um, which segues nicely into the work that Stanley and his colleagues have done um, developing the welfare regime hypothesis, um, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, um, it, which takes a political perspective and combines um, biopsychosocial model with biocultural research. Um, and just to summarize that, that work, in case you're not familiar with it, um, they identified um, uh, that... Um, welfare regimes um, that are more market liberal um, show an interesting and unique patterning of, of the rates of the prevalences of obesities. And so dividing their research um, or dividing the analyses up by different welfare regimes, um, they're able to see the differences. Um, so that's looking at countries like the UK and the US, and I think it was it was based on English language specifically is, was the factor that, that, un, that unified the market liberal and welfare regimes in that study. Um, and so they've developed a hypothesis that um, predicts that these high rates are due to chronic life stress resulting from competition, uncertainty and inequality associated with market liberal welfare regimes. Um, and these, these components of competition, uncertainty and inequality are part of a larger issue of the insecurity um, that market liberal welfare regimes um, demand, really, um, with an emphasis on um, government being there to support the market as opposed to government being there to support um, individuals and individual health, for example. Stan, is there anything you'd like to add to that? No, it's your talk. <laughs> Just want to make sure I've got it right. Um, so looking at um, cultural models, so looking at the literature there that's done um, in anthropology, um, looking specifically at obesity, so work by um, Alexander Brutus and Bill Dresler um, is an interesting way of, of looking at this issue. Um, it's really warm in here. Um, so Brewis and Garten define a, a cultural model as a shared understanding that both interpret human experience but also shape goals that should structure action. Um, so this is work in cognitive anthropology. Um, and, and so Brewis has done work on parent-child eating practices um, as well as fat stigma. She's done some really excellent work on global fat stigma. Um, and Bill Dresler's work in um, Brazil found that individuals who do not share the dominant views of the group, um, so the out-group, experience high levels, higher levels of stress, and also those people who don't believe that lifestyle change is possible, so if they feel that they don't have the control over their lives um, to make change, to make a healthy change, for example, um, are people who are more likely to overeat. 
So there's a real, real danger um, with um, these behavior change interventions. So putting this together after reading um, Stanley's work, um, I've put together this model. It's just a conceptual model. Um, and it's a, it's a biopsychosocial model of obesity. So um, on the outside, we have material and social environments. Um, which can range from a lot of different things, but it's really looking at, at insecurity, um, so issues of job insecurity, um, inadequate welfare systems, for example, um, sedentary living conditions, and, and ideal body standards, and so on. So all these issues that, that we're up against um, in, in the wider environment, things that we don't have any real influence on, can affect our psychological states, um, which is the ring um, in the middle, the gray one in the middle. Um, so in terms of mental health, like depression, for example, um, but also feelings of social isolation, internalized shame, low self-esteem, um, sleep disturbances, which then can lead to obesogenic responses, um, like comfort eating, overeating, um, low physical activity, as well as um, non-behavior-related issues like abdominal fat storage, which is something we don't really have any, any um, say over whatsoever. Um, so I've put these blue arrows in as a way of, of showing that the relationship isn't, isn't linear, that these are very, it's more complex than this, but this is just, this is a first draft of the model, um, which I would like to test further. Are there any questions about this model? Yes. Um, sorry, um, I see it's biopsychosocietal. Is that right? Yes. So, um, what is the societal versus social trying to indicate? Um, it's really looking at. Um, it's. I've changed that word because, for me, it's looking at the wider societal um, structures and looking at it from a more political. Lens. So rather than it being a social model where that's quite, well, it's conceived really at the individual level and the community level, um, whereas on the outside, the material and social environments are very much um, extend beyond that level onto a much higher level. So it's really, for me, the purpose of that was to redistribute or re-emphasize um, the locus of responsibility. Um, and it's come from a piece of research um, which I've got here, um, which I'm going to talk about next. So maybe it'll be clearer with that as well. Is that okay? Okay. Um, so using cultural consensus analysis, which is um, what um, I was referring to with Bruis and Dresler's work um, in terms of, of developing cultural models. Um, Stanley and I got some funding from the Wellcome Trust um, to do a cultural consensus analysis, um, which is a method um, used to identify commonly held culture views within a group. Um, and so it's a way of, um, it's a mixed methods approach, so you can develop a questionnaire based on ethnographic work and other kinds of research um, as a way of, of measuring um, how well an individual fits with the beliefs of the rest of the group. 
Um, so for this piece of research, um, we aimed to generate a model that can estimate, estimate group beliefs held by general practitioners and mothers. So I looked specifically at this group because I had done um, meta-ethnography on um, GPs and patients' perspectives on roles and responsibilities of obesity. Um, and I wanted to um, continue to look at, to look at that dynamic. Um, and um, in terms of the, the methodology of cultural consensus analysis, um, it's really best done with, um, with, with smaller um, sample sizes, so sample sizes around 30. Um, size, sample sizes which are um, homogeneous, so, um, so I wanted to look at very specific um, samples, so general practitioners and mothers, um, as opposed to parents or primary care practitioners. Um, so what I wanted to look at was um, testing the effects of factors of insecurity associated with market liberal welfare regimes, so looking at these factors of competition, uncertainty, and inequality on chronic life stress and the effects of chronic life stress on obesogenic responses. So it's really testing the biopsychosocial model that I put up before um, and trying to link those concepts together. So um, do people understand obesity in terms of it, in terms of issues of insecurity? affecting stress, so does insecurity lead to stress, is that people's experiences and people's perceptions, and does this chronic life stress, is it able to, the, does it then contribute to obesogenic responses? So we wanted to know what people's experiences were, and try to link, link these um, in a model. Any questions about that? Yeah, sorry, it's okay. I'm just wondering, you're saying you chose um, kind of homogenous groups because you need this small sample size. So the, the mothers and the GPs that you chose, the GPs, I suppose, they're homogenous in terms of their professional, but the mothers, how is that group homogenous? Well, I sampled from just the northeast of England, so it was a small, small population there, and the northeast of England is quite a homogenous group um, anyway in terms of ethnicity and socioeconomic status. Um, so in the next slide, I talk a bit about the sample. Um, so we used an 82-item questionnaire that um, we constructed um, and um, sampled in the northeast of England with um, adults um, of women who were mothers of people who were actually children at that time. Um, so that narrows it down a little bit more. Um, we found mothers lived in areas of high deprivation, GPs lived in areas of average deprivation. Um, and they agreed on 34 items out of the 82, and they disagreed on none, so there was a, a really strong shared model. Um, and they confirmed um, that the model, um, they confirmed the model that insecurity can lead to stress, and that stress can lead to obesogenic responses. So without going into the questionnaire in, in, in too much detail, um, what we found was um, people acknowledged that carrying out public health messages um, is not straightforward in the context of people's daily lives. Um, so an, exercise, um, an example around that is, um, is dealing with exercise. So people thought that exercise was considered a good remedy for stress and fatigue, so they would answer a statement you know, if you're feeling stressed, you should go out and exercise. 
Um, but then in, the, in other statements, people also um, understood that when you're feeling stress and fatigue, you, don't wanna, you might not want to go outside of the house. You might not want to be out on the street because the streets are unsafe, or you might not want to go to a gym or run on the street um, for fear of being hollered at or stigmatized. Um, so there's a tension there um, that, of believing that some factors are outside of a person's power, for example, um, like carrying out exercise. It's not just something you can just do. There are other um, contextual factors that, that can create barriers to exercising. Um, um, but then there's also this expectation that people should overcome these barriers. So in statements, people would reply and say, um, yeah, someone should be able, you should be able to overcome, um, you know, challenges and you should take, take control of your life, for example. Um, and you should take control and lead a healthy lifestyle. Um, so this, for me, it suggests an impossible double standard that public health messages pose for people. Um, because while we're expecting people to make changes in their lives, people are also feeling that it's not that straightforward just to, just to make changes. Um, so that research um, led us to, um, to conclude that we need to do some ethnographic research on people's experiences of inequalities, stress, and obesity. Um, and there's a really good review by Thoits on, um, on health and stress. Um, and she concluded that, um, that we need more research to trace the effects of neighborhood disadvantage to residents' personal experiences of chronic strain, social isolation, and lack of control. Um, and I've done a review of the literature, and I found a small body of work examining experiences of low-income families and their relationships with food, um, which, which draw out stress as a theme, um, but none have really looked holistically um, at, at the concept of obesity and looked at it from a complex systems perspective. So not just looking at food, but looking at physical activity and looking at mental health and looking at all those other um, factors that the um, foresight model brings up, as well as some of the other factors that the foresight model hasn't brought up. Um, so future work, um, I might just um, breeze through this. I think we're about five to two. Um, so, um, so what I what I would like to do, and what we're trying to look funding, look to get funding for, is um, to collect data on life histories, um, participant observation, and participant records. Um, uh, in the UK is where I'd like to do the research, and um, also get some funding for public a public engagement project. So really listening to people's stories about their experiences of um, people who live in deprived areas and their experiences of, of just living their lives and trying to adopt healthy lifestyles and, and the kind of barriers that people are up against. Um, and, but really, for those who are willing to share those stories on a national platform so we can actually bring to light this idea um, of, of of the challenges that people face, but hearing it from the people themselves. Um, and there would be a translational research component, but I think I will leave it there. Um, I'm going the other way, so thank you very much for your time.